You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. In the throes of the hashtag MeToo and hashtag Believe Women movement, Aram Shazia Hassan was writing her first novel, We Meant Well, which was published by ECW Press this April 2023. It's an incredible debut for Hassan, an evocative, beautifully crafted, tightly wrought narrative which dynamically propels us forward. As Maya, the protagonist and an aid worker, is called from her home in Los Angeles to Lakani, where she works with an agency to operate a charitable orphanage. The urgency is related to the fact that her colleague, Mark, has been accused of assaulting a local girl. As tensions flare in Lakani, Maya is also grappling with the pressures of her marriage, in large measure related to the fact that she believes her husband to be unfaithful. So on the one hand, she feels a strain of that relationship, while on the other, Maya must make decisions about the orphanage that will affect the charity, the community, and the relationships that she has forged over time in Lakani. There's a lot at stake. The stage is thus set for a thrilling, gripping narrative, one that you won't be able to put down. And if that doesn't sufficiently tantalize you, I think my conversation with Hassan will. This is my interview with Aram Shazia Hassan. Hi, Aram, and welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, Linda. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure, a real pleasure, because as you know, in our advanced conversation about this novel, I told you how much I really love this novel, and I do. This was your first novel, is that right? It is. It is. And that's why I think when you say that, it means so much because there's so much insecurity when you put out your first book into the world. It's a stunning debut. Stunning. I can't believe it's your first novel. Thank you. Could you tell us, tell the listeners a little bit about the origins of the novel? Did you draw extensively on your own work? I understand that you're a sustainable development consultant for you and agencies. Did you draw on your work for this novel? I did. And just before we start, I just want to clarify that even though I am a consultant for the UN, none of the none of this book is based on or is the opinion of the UN at all. Um, (laughs) Just to clarify that. But yes, I started writing this novel actually in a UN vehicle in Haiti. And I had just arrived. It was in February uh, in the middle of middle of the polar vortex. And so I'd just gone from Canada and landed in Haiti where it was nice and warm and everything was so colorful and beautiful and I realized how happy I was to be there in that moment how awake I felt and as soon as I sat in the car and I was thinking about that I realized I had this character come to my mind about what if someone was coming back but wasn't happy what if someone was coming back to reconcile themselves with a difficult past and that's where the novel kind of started for me that's the character of Maya the protagonist who has this kind of conflicted life back at home in Los Angeles, but then is going to Lakani to deal with this difficult situation. Tell us a little bit before we actually get into the novel, and we will tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. the experience then of writing this first novel. Mm-hmm. 
So this is an eight-year process. So this novel has taken many, many years. It took me a year and a half to really write the novel, and then the rest of it was really applying to agents, applying to various publishing agencies. And so that was really, the bulk of that time was really spent editing. Um, but the part that I think was the most useful in those sort of eight years was once I finished my manuscript, I was lucky enough to meet the author C.S. Richardson, a, an award-winning Canadian novelist. And uh, we met by fluke and he, um, he told me that if he wanted, if, if I wanted him to take a look at my manuscript, that he'd be happy to take a look at it. Amazing. And so when I gave it to him, I remember saying, look, all I want from you is to tell me if I'm one of those people in American Idol who go on and think <laughs> they can sing, but can't. That's all I want. Like, is there something here or is this just me there trying, is. you know, something that I really should not be doing? So he took a few days, gave me 13 pages of notes and then told me, yes, there's something here but you have a lot of work to do. And that was really the thing that kind of set me on my Well, path. that was very generous on his part, but the result is breathtaking. It's That's a right. really fine novel in all kinds of ways in terms of pace and narrative and uh, point of view, the voice of the character, the credibility of the character. It, it's all, it all works. So why this story? What compelled you to tell this story? I think part of my work involves going from Canada, working in different parts of the world. And one of the things that I'm always taken by is the level of connection there, are, there is between people around the world. I think we forget that sometimes. We live in Canada, we're far away. And, and when I'm in different places and suddenly I hear, you know, a Canadian song being sung from the mouths of people in Morocco, or when I'm here in the morning drinking my Ethiopian coffee, I realize how intimately people are involved with one another. And and in my life, it's quite natural to, you know, maybe in the morning be sitting with fisher folk in Haiti and then in the afternoon be picking my kids up from school in Toronto. And so I was so hyper aware of all these interconnections and the way our choices affect one another, our art affects one another, our language, um, that I wanted to bring a book that shows and highlights how things that happen in one place are deeply intertwined with things that happen somewhere else. That's actually an extraordinary way of thinking. This is a, precisely what does happen in the novel. So we have this character, Maya, who lives, as we've said already, in Los Angeles and works in Lacani, and there are repercussions or intersections between her personal life and her life abroad, which we'll also again come to. Let's talk a little bit about Maya. Mm -hmm. So the book is written from her point of view. And she's called upon to resolve the problems that arrive in Lakani when her colleague Mark is suspected of having assaulted a local girl named, is it Lily? Lily. Lily, yeah. Lily. And so if you could first just describe Maya's character for our listeners, who is she and why is she conflicted about having to take on this role? Mm -hmm. I see Maya as a character that's a little lost um, mm. in the novel. Uh, she is slightly jaded. I think she feels powerless in her own life and she's trying to find spaces in which to find power and identity. Uh, I think huh. she was also kind of a useful tool for me to also highlight the role of the humanitarian. And I see and work with a lot of humanitarians in my life and, and see how you know people go to other countries with the best of intentions, leave their families, leave their countries, leave their cultures, end up somewhere else. And their relationship is very interesting with those places, right? They're going there to help and save and and the listeners can't see but there's a wonderful moment where she <laughs> used air quotes around help and so I thought that's great 
to provide assistance and not to take away from the amazing work that a lot of people do, but it creates a sort of dual identity of, uh, of where you live and where you work and your home country and your home culture. And I think that when people work in, in whether it's in humanitarianism or development, they, when they come back, they're never really the same. And it's kind of difficult when your day-to-day issues can be so vastly different to reconcile those two parts of their identity. Mm. And so that's what I wanted to do for Maya is really showcase that, you know, she went in with the best of intentions. Is Likani home for her? Somewhat, but not really. But is her home home for her? It isn't really quite there yet either. So where is that space where she can find herself? And so that was kind of what I wanted to explore through Maya. She's a character who's very uneasy with herself. I think that's in part what you're registering. I teach a feminist theory class, so the history of feminist theory. And one of the main tenets of third wave feminism is understanding that Western feminism cannot be applied to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm. So Maya is, in fact, struggling, from my point of view, with competing ideas of feminism. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, good. <laughs> Do I have this right? <laughs> so I wondered if that was a deliberate choice on your part, and if so, what were you trying to convey in delineating those competing claims? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's like a huge question, it just in for development and feminism at large, but it's something that I've seen so often uh, in countries. And even in, you know, for example, my background is from Pakistan. And even in Pakistan, there's such a tension when I look at the feminist movement, because there is a tendency to emulate, right? Mm-hmm. So feminism is what comes out of Western countries, is this, this notion. And so what is a country-produced feminism? What is a sort of an authentic uh, cultural feminism? What does that look like when there's a sort of pathway that people feel kind of forced to to follow? Because that is the model that's been set up of what feminism looks like. Um, and so for Maya, it's something that she's just occupying that in, in, in sort of real terms. It's not something academic in her mind. Mm-hmm. She has notions of what being a feminist and being a free woman looks like. And she has a conversation with one of the main characters about that, about what to her, what feminine, what being a free woman is. But the question is, is she actually living that? And is she experiencing that freedom within herself or not? And is she? I don't, I'm not quite sure she is. I think she has moments of it, but there's something that's holding her back. And what's that something that you think is holding her back? I think it may be the difference between um, how she feels that she needs to live her life and how she's living her life. So there is some sort of dichotomy there that that she can't really bridge. Which uh, I'm going to be very careful about not giving too much of the plot away. But I will say that this is a process that goes on for the entirety of the novel. That is, that she's trying to reconcile or work through some of these ideas. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much um, trauma plays a role in her life and her decisions. Mm-hmm. Would you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a huge part of it. And I think one of the things that I wanted to touch upon was this idea of where, and this is actually more personal to me that I wanted to raise this point through the character, because we're not very alike, but there's this one element that I wanted to put in Maya that I also struggle with. And I think anyone who's a caregiver or a social worker or a doctor or a nurse um, struggle with this is where's the difference between the self and the other? So how connected should one be between between a caregiver and the person who's receiving the care? 
And often, you know, we are told to have healthy boundaries and um, be able to protect ourselves first, put the oxygen mask on first before we can take care of somebody else. That's very much a part of the way we think. But then there's this moral question of, if you do that, are you creating a separation or a border between yourself and someone else who's suffering? And is there a moral right to do that? Like the minute you can sort of walk away from someone suffering, are you not as engaged, involved as you could be to, to sort of self to help that suffering? And so I think that that is something that Maya, I raised that question for her. There's a scene where she's in the marketplace and, and that she has where she's hearing all these sort of horrific stories and she doesn't know what, what role she should take in these stories. You know, should she be, is she complicit if, if she's just a listener? Um, or does she need to be a part of these stories? And I think when she, when there's an event that happens which makes her leave Likani in the first place, it's that that sort of the breakdown of understanding that in a sort of academic way of, right, there's a crisis happening, I need to manage the crisis. It's the idea of now there's no separation between her and the actual trauma. She has become that and she has to leave. It sounds to me like you're suggesting that there are two types of, res well, pro possibly more, but at least two types of responses, an embodied response and an academic cerebral response. Mm -hmm. Would you say that that's part of Maya's yeah, predicament? Yeah, absolutely. It is. Absolutely. And there's the human connection level, and then there's the, you know, to be a good supporter, you need to actually be, have your, you know, you need to mm. have yourself together and you need to be able to make conscious decisions and so on and so forth. But then there's also that very human element, which is the sharing of emotions. Mm -hmm. On the track of feminism, we were talking about different brands of feminism, third wave feminism, for example. And one of the words that came to mind when I was reading this novel was the word intersectionality, mm -hmm. which is bandied about quite a lot now. But it carries, for me, so much weight in concrete terms in this book. So what are the different claims being made on Maya's identity? What are the different facets of her, her identity that she has to negotiate and try to reconcile? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Maya is a Western woman, a sort of middle class Western woman. Um, and so there's that aspect of her. She's coming from the so-called developed world, going into the developing world. So there's definitely a class element that's there. And then uh, Maya's racialized. So she yeah. comes from a South Asian background, yeah. uh, but she was adopted. So she has no affinity, connection, or emotional attachments to that identity. That identity is something she doesn't know. For her, it just symbolizes an identity that's linked to rejection. And so in in true form she's a western woman but she doesn't embody that physically and so when she goes into this world of of, of aid she is however seen as a brown woman and so that places her in a very interesting kind of a space between white westerners uh, black uh, people who live in the, where she's working and she's in this in this in-between space where she doesn't quite enjoy the exact same privileges um, amongst her, her Western peers, but in comparison to the people who live there, she is seen as an outsider. So it gives, it allowed that to have another entry point into the sort of racial dynamics and the class dynamics that exist. These were, I think, part of your aesthetic decisions, right? The fact that she's an adopted child. What compels you to make these kind of decisions? Mm -hmm. So initially, when I started writing the novel, she was very much a white woman. And then I thought, you know what? Oh, no it's, kidding. You changed her. I did change her. As oh, I started could you speak her. to that? Yeah. Well, so I started writing her as a white woman. And then I thought that I didn't I didn't want to create this simplistic racial binary that can sometimes come up. And so I thought making her a brown woman actually gave her a very interesting vantage point into this world. 
because I know as a brown woman, I, you know, sometimes I land places and people call me white lady and other times they don't, or they look at me and they think, no. oh, you must have been colonized somewhere in your history. And so have we. And so we share something in common. Like there's this, you know, given acceptance. So I wanted her to have that kind of that entry point into some of the conversations, some very honest conversations that she has with people in the Kani that she may not have otherwise had. And also I wanted to make sure that she, that I, I made her this adopted character because I, I think a lot about the diaspora and I think sometimes mm. um, children of the diaspora are actually quite disconnected from their parents' country. Indeed, yes. And their skin color may consistently you know, connect them to those places. You know, for example, as I mentioned, I'm of a Pakistani background. I speak Urdu. I go visit every two, you three do. years. I, I'm trying hard for my kids to learn. But a lot of the people I meet in Canada who might have the same background don't speak the language, have never been there. And so it's interesting how we, we, we're, so to speak, we're the same cultural, we part, we're part of the same cultural group, but we actually see those histories in very, very different ways. And so I wanted to make her adopted because I also wanted to show that how you know, just being part of a racialized group doesn't mean that you maybe have all the connections and the linkages that one would assume. Yes, that's quite, I think that's quite right. And this is what part of what Maya's predicament seems to be, that I think the complexity of her character is that she doesn't know exactly to what to lay claim. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What community is she a part of? Mm -hmm. And this is also further complicated by her personal life. So let's turn to that. She has a daughter and a husband back in Los Angeles. There is some sense of guilt every time she has to leave her daughter behind. She also believes perhaps her husband is unfaithful, mm -hmm. but she never confronts him. So what's that about, that reluctance that she doesn't want to confront her husband and how does it relate to what's going on in Lakani? Mm -hmm. So um, I wanted to really juxtapose the personal violences against these sort of bigger, larger political sexual violences. And I was really interested in this notion of, you know, when something terrible is happening, let's say in someone's marriage, that can be just as huge as a violation as something political that's happening. Uh, oh, yes. Yep. You know, so you mm -hmm. can we can be angry at politicians for lying to us. But what about that personal violence, that personal lie and that personal betrayal? And so I wanted to juxtapose that. And I also wanted to show how here is Maya going to sort of help Lele through this very tricky situation. But at the end of the day, that is on the back burner for her. What's really occupying her mind is what's happening with her marriage. That is bigger, larger. That's a bigger um, affront to her than what has happened to Lele. It kind of usurps all her energy, her you know mental energy. So I wanted to to showcase that. It's also inflected too in various ways by her experiences abroad because the reason that she has married this person was a kind of initial fascination. That mm -hmm. is his fascination with her. Mm -hmm. That was something I take it that you were also trying to build into the narrative. Yes, I think like she wanted to be loved and desired and and in some way even objectified in the being wanted, right? Mm. And so here was a man who represented all of those things that we see as successful markers in Western society, right? He's, you know, a liberal, successful man with a career, with a family that's quite well settled, who's 
you know, committed to different social causes and so on and so forth. And he's fun and he loves her for her youth and exuberance and all these things. And, and she feels very adored. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that is the sentiment that she is change, uh, chasing is this feeling of uh, adoration as well as stability because he's giving her something that is quite structured that she can just slip into. Except that it's a structure that then entraps her mm-hmm. to some extent. Would right. that be a fair assessment? Right. And it doesn't allow her the space to have that part of her, which sort of comes out in Rikani, that comes in that freedom that came in her o- older relationship, her previous relationship with Anders. And so that is a part of her. Being a humanitarian is a fundamental part of her. And she has seen things that many of her peers in Los Angeles haven't. And so is there room for that part of her identity to flourish in this relationship with her husband? It does not really seem like it. Yes. The narrative for me is so interesting in that she is being asked to believe and not to believe Mm -hmm. certain things. So I wonder if you could speak to the process of believing and not believing. In terms of what's happening with her husband? And also in Lakani. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in her personal, in her marriage, I think for a lot of people, it's so hard to face the truth of rejection, the truth of betrayal, the truth of what a person who loves you can do Mm. to you and that was something that which is why she can't just accept it um, and which is why she struggles with it and and that there's always reasons for um, not believing that Um, and then the same thing happens in Lakani because in Lakani she is being um, encouraged to question a colleague whom she has seen at the worst of times behaving in the most noble of ways so I wanted to raise that issue, especially when we were talking this. I wrote this book before the Me Too movement. Uh, but this idea of how difficult it is, you know, we always say believe the survivors, but how difficult mm-hmm. that is when it's someone you work with, when it's someone you've trusted, when it's someone that you've seen mm. perform well and and do what you're what they're supposed to. How can you take all of that away and see them only as someone who is a criminal? So that that dance of, you know, it's very easy to dislike someone and say, okay, they've done something wrong, but it's very difficult to be able to see someone through that lens when you've seen them doing good things. It's interesting that you just said that you wrote this before the advent of the Me Too movement and the hashtag Believe Women and so Mm -hmm. forth, because it dovetails so, um, so well, actually, Mm -hmm. with that movement now. As you were writing it, did you feel like the, that the movement affected what you were doing that so you said it took a process of about eight years mm-hmm. did that have a bearing on the shape of the narrative so the main arc of the narrative stayed the same what changed was maybe the way I wrote about it because huh. I wanted to be very careful and not diminish the crime and at the same time show how easily it is diminished right in the context and so that's a very tender dance really to be able to to capture that it's so easy for people to put this sort of aside oh it's just one other crime oh it's not proven and so on and so forth and at the same time give it the kind of gravitas that it requires when we're talking about those things so that was definitely affected by the movement itself but the question of sexual violence and and that was always in my mind beforehand Uh, in fact it's odd but it is an issue that comes up a lot in in writing that I've done even for myself oh interesting Um, so because there is such a and I was wondering about that like why do I always keep like why is this an issue that pops up in so much of my writing 
And because I think also as we become women and there is such a vulnerability um, of self that is mm. that you are you become aware of as a woman um, that it sort of kind of peters through a lot of the stuff that I write. Wow. So there's more writing after this one. There's more <laughs> that we can expect and look forward to. <laughs> so let's turn now to the title. We met well. So I thought, well, who means well? Maya, although then the title would have been She Meant Well. So it can't just be her. Is it the agency that operates the charitable orphanage? Is it Lily's family? Is it her brother? Who's the we in mm -hmm. We Meant Well? Well, I think because the uh, novel is written in first person, um, it really is coming from Maya and her peers and, and her the organization that she works for. Because at the end of it, she, she really does mean well. She went to go do this work because she wanted to make people's lives better and she wanted to connect with different kinds of people. And I think at a broader scale, this can be something for not just humanitarians, but development workers at large. The idea is that when you do this kind of work, you are very well-meaning. You're going in there with the noblest of intentions. Um, so I think that's, you can sort of broaden mm. that up to that sector as a whole. But there's a note of regret in that, well, we meant well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because I think, especially in, if you look at Maya's relationship with Lele, here was someone that, that she mentored. Here is someone that she was sort of bringing in and she wanted to see Lele flourish and sort of take over. And, and she hadn't thought about any of the other repercussions of, of this engagement that she had with Lele or of the people that she worked and trusted with working with Lele. So the idea is that, yes, we meant well, but there absolutely is a, a, a note of regret. And I think that is something we always need to have in those cases because we always have to keep re-examining the kind of work and the kind of choices that are being made and, and, and have a sort of um, a learning, uh, sort of learning and an, and, and an adjustment kind of mm. um, approach to, to development and to charities where you can't be static about it. You can't be like, this is the service we provide and these are the beneficiaries. And uh, no, it has to be constantly changing, shifting, dynamic, and you need to be constantly learning from your mistakes. That, there has, that has to be built in. So it's an ongoing process. I'm just going to push you a little bit more on the title because it's also in the past tense. Mm -hmm. We meant well, not mm -hmm. we mean well. Mm -hmm. Well, that is really specific um, to, to Maya, is that she meant well when she went to go do this work. She meant well when she supported her colleagues. She meant well when she took Lily under her wing. Um, she meant well when she was having those conversations with Fennel. So all of that is really looking at her from almost the end point of like, you know, she, this is in sort of looking back in the rearview mirror. She didn't mean well. Could it also reflect her and her husband's approach to their marriage? We meant well. <laughs> um, a little less for their marriage. I, I thought of it. <laughs> so I don't know how much they put into it, but um, <laughs> but it was more really specifically towards her role in Lakani. I don't want to give away the ending, mm -hmm. um, which is astonishing, <laughs> actually, really astonishing. And the pace of the book is so wonderful that I think readers will, and I'm saying this to the listeners, will have a hard time putting it down. They'll just race right to that, to that end point. Did you write with that end point in mind? So I think I had about 13 endings. Oh, <laughs> no. Um, and each one was its own challenge, but 
I just knew when this one, I was like, this is the ending. And I wanted people to feel like they'd held their breath through the entire book. Like I that wanted- is, That <laughs> is exactly what happens, yes. And so I wanted the ending to be an even, like a, a sort of a, a larger, like either intake of, of air or just like a big sigh of exasperation. But like, I wanted it to, to feel like they'd just been holding their breath during the entire time and, and, and finish with this weird adrenaline rush. That is precisely what happened. I, I put it down and I thought, wait, where's volume two? Aram, <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you so much. This was a great interview. I really, really enjoyed talking to you this morning about your novel, which again, I'm going to strongly recommend to my listeners. This is a book you do not want to miss. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda. And thank you for all these super intelligent questions <laughs> forcing me to think about my book in different ways. Again, that was my interview with Aram Shazia Hassan, whose first novel, We Meant Well, is available through ECW Press. I'll have some information in my show notes. Please note that we'll be taking a short break for the summer and we'll be back by August 15. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and rate us on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. And thanks as always for joining us, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.